Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Katie Boland, an actor and filmmaker and friend of the show, having done one of the very first Simcasts back in 2015. At the time, Katie picked Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and it's a good episode. But since she plays twin sisters in her directorial debut, We're All In This Together, which is on screen now in Toronto and Vancouver and coming to VOD later this year, it just made sense to have her back for a second one. Katie picked Stories We Tell, Sarah Polly's 2012 documentary about the complicated relationship of Michael and Diane Polly, the shattering death of Diane when Sarah was still a kid, and the discoveries that emerged years later to make Sarah question everything she knew about her family and herself starting with the fact that Montreal producer Harry Gulkin, and not Michael Polly, was her biological father. Sorry for the spoiler, but imagine how Sarah felt, and then be amazed that she made the movie she made, a film that has real empathy for everyone involved, and a willingness to acknowledge most relationships are far messier than they appear to people on the outside, or even people on the inside, really. This is someone else's movie. So I chose stories we tell because Sarah Pauly is probably my favorite filmmaker. And this was her film that absolutely moved me the most. Um, I think we all have secrets within our family. We all have different points of view on our family and our family's mythology and lore. So I remember when I first saw this, when it came out, I was just, just totally awestruck. And like Sarah has said in interviews that she prefers documentary to fictional films. And I feel the same way. And this is the first documentary that I saw that really, really spoke to me and sort of cemented my love of, of that medium. Um, and I chose it because the film that I have that's coming out that I directed, we're all in this together, is about a dysfunctional family. And you could argue that stories we tell is also about a dysfunctional family, sort of uncovering different truths about each other. Oh, very much so. It's... I'm trying to figure out, I'm, I'm walking a weird line here because Sarah's a friend, right? And, and um, we actually, I think, if, yeah, I mean, of course, Stories, I was going to say Stories We Tell is the last movie I reviewed of hers because after that, we just, it became too intertwined and personal and, and like, it wouldn't be ethically appropriate for me to, to review her films as a critic. But also, of course, it was the last movie she made for 10 years. So in that time, I have... Uh, she's been through what she's been through with, with, you know, she's written about it now with the concussion and everything and, and all of these other things. And the films that she made are just sort of a, a, a version of her that's sort of trapped in time, right? Like these, these processes of intensity and discovery and, and stories we tell to me, she makes this movie and it's like, oh, this is the movie you've been moving towards your entire career. Like both, both away from her and take this waltz are kind of about the same thing. They're all films about the fragility of marriage and the fact that you never really know your partner, um, no matter how close you are, no matter how confident you are in your relationship. There's always a there's always a blind spot. There's always a dead zone that you can't fully access. And then stories we tell comes out. All the all the things that they mention that she alludes to all their relationships, their entire all the the poly family, all their relationships self destruct. It's all happening in that moment. And then. Yeah, even now I'm trying not to stumble over stuff. It's it's not like I'm trying to protect anything, but it is just such a nakedly personal work. And she kept insisting it's about her parents, it's not her, but of course it's your origin story, right? I mean, that's the whole point of the film and and to see that to to revisit it a couple of years ago even is like, oh, this this filmmaker who is wrestling with stuff and doesn't know how to articulate it and then finds the vessel of her 
father who's not her biological father, but who is her dad, to narrate the story and make himself the sort of tragic, flawed hero in the story that he's telling, which is not the story that she's telling, and this incredible refractive act that 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 the movie becomes. And then to actually get to know her and be like, oh, this was incredibly hard for you. Like, this isn't just a, a cerebral exercise in pitching things and putting it all together. This is taking it out of yourself to tell this story and be the sort of the, the, the she's not the hero of it. She's barely, she's kind of an antagonist here and there, pressing people to, to go further. And then you, you just, again, you step back and you realize like, this isn't an act of documentary filmmaking. This is personal cinema and, and how, how heavy all of that has to be. Yeah. You know, so it's interesting because I do know Sarah a little bit, but who I know actually very well is her brother, John, who's in the film, mm -hmm. um, John Buchan. He actually, he's a very successful casting director in Toronto and he cast my film. We're all in this together. So oh. I was watching. Yeah. So I was rewatching stories we tell today before our conversation. And I thought how I'm actually, I'm also about to direct a Murdoch mysteries, which he also casts. And I was speaking to him on zoom today and I thought, do I tell him that I am watching this documentary that's essentially that is about his family and has a, a lot to do with him and his personal life as well as, as Sarah and Sarah's origin story. But yeah, it, it, I, I felt like I read some interviews that Sarah did about this film and she said, she's surprised that it's a cohesive film at all because when she was, she felt like she was skating through molasses as she was making it because she was so close to it and it was so personal. And I think any filmmaker really feels that way when they're making a film, but I cannot imagine if you're making it about your own biology, your own parents, what you thought was true, what turned out to be true. And there's just so many wonderful twists and turns in this. And I think we can all relate to that in our families that as we get older, we look at our parents' marriage differently. We look at our childhood differently. We have different stories from our siblings. And I thought, you know, just it was the way that she has done it was so brilliant. And I think it's such a universal film because whether you're actually investigating your biology as she is, or you just do that as you become an adult in a more sort of obscure way, we can all really relate to it. And I love how the film starts with um, a story becomes like the Margaret Atwood quote, which I'll, which I'll butcher, but it's like a story becomes a story afterwards when you're going through it, it's still a confusion. Yeah. And I thought how true, just how true is that? It is, and it's a perfect frame for the film too, which is like, it's sort of, it's never flailing exactly. The the editorial strategy is too elegant, the way that things flow from one scene to the next. But gradually when you realize, oh, that's Rebecca Jenkins. I, I know that person. I know like, that's not Diane Polly. I met Diane Polly. There's no way they could have had that footage. Where did that come from? And she's, and, and this, she credited uh, Sarah rather, and Sarah credited Mike Munn, the editor, with all of this. She said that like the best way to do it is to just let it all run together and make the viewer question whose version of the story they're seeing at any given moment. Because obviously so much of this is going to be orchestrated in the editing, but she said they found it in the edit and it took months and months and months and they weren't even sure there was a movie there half the time. And then it all just found its path. But I think maybe that's just her process. She has to edit herself into a corner and then realize she has to break the wall down to get out of it rather than reversing. It's just find a completely new way. 
I, and I wonder if that's everyone's process. Like people ask me oftentimes, did you have a nervous breakdown while filming your movie? Because I directed it and played twins in it. And my answer is no, I had a nervous breakdown while editing my movie. (laughs) (laughs) When you're making it, you're in the joy of making something. You're so distracted. I was particularly wearing a lot of hats. Sarah making this film was also wearing a lot of hats. She was the filmmaker. She was the interviewer. She was the daughter. Um, But when you're actually looking at your film and you think, how do I make this work? Or this piece doesn't work how I thought it would. I think that's almost everyone's creative experience. I'm not surprised, but I do think that what she did with the recreations was particularly new and not derivative because there's so many versions of documentaries. There's like the talking heads and then there's the recreations, but I loved that she combined both and that her recreations, you didn't know until the end, really, when there's the reveal, when you see her directing the scenes, you might not know that there were those were actors and it wasn't actually the footage of her childhood or found footage. Yeah. And you have that door in the back of your mind too. It's like, well, they're family of actors. They probably were filming themselves all the time. Like you just, your brain overwrites the fact that it was the 1970s rather than the 1990s when everybody had a camcorder. And sure, you just, you believe what's put in front of you the same way a child will believe the stories that their parents tell them, right? Like every kid grows up thinking that their lives are just like everybody else's. And then gradually as you get older, you meet someone who doesn't have the same background as you or didn't have the same schooling as you or even the tiniest thing. And you realize, oh no, we're all so weird and individual and we're all the products of that envi- of the specific environments that raised us. And I think that's the key to survival. That's why she's okay now is because she got to understand that at an early age that her life wasn't normal, that these situations, I mean, her mom dying obviously derailed so much of what might have happened but being a child actor and the the kind of constant absurdity of giving up a part of your childhood in order to do something to play another child to play a child with a happy childhood or a normal childhood is so strange i mean you you started fairly young too right like this is something that's common to actors where you're you're diverging almost immediately from the person you are Yeah. I mean, I started when I was eight and I think I had a sort of similar trajectory to Sarah and that we were both on television, like sort of long running television series in our childhood. Obviously Road to Avonlea, I think was much more famous than the shows that I was on. Um, But it is interesting. And just, you know, her film is so much about memory and sort of the pliability of memory and what we put on memory or put over paper over our memories. And what's interesting about being a child actor is there's a lot of my childhood that I can actually watch that's on YouTube now. So I might, I don't remember filming a lot of the television series I was on, but I can watch them now. And that is, I think, a particularly weird part of being a child actor. And I think also why I've always been so inspired by Sarah is because she took a different path than just wanting to continue only being an actor. And she sort of took some ownership over her life and has some authorship over her life as a writer and a director. And now it's interesting when you watch stories we tell, it's like she's also taken that authorship over her family in some ways. Yeah. Oh, I hadn't really thought of it like that. But yes, she does give herself the last word, more or less. Yeah. I mean, the final sort of scenes are both of her father saying, this is my story to tell. I know, I really know the truth or some version of that. Um, And then also her biological father saying, like, we could all sit through this footage. I think it's her biological father. It's sit through this footage and we would all have different versions of it if we edited it together, but you're the one who's editing it together. So I thought that that was, you know, it's just such a true thing about 
family and family histories. It's like, we pass on our versions of it to our, to our children and, and on and on and on. Yeah. It's, I mean, you can say it's a house of cards, right? Like everything is stacked on everything else, but or a hall of mirrors, which is the, like the refractive metaphor I was coming up with before, but it's really neither of those things, is it? Like it's about trust. It's about trusting the viewer to understand and be able to follow it. But it's also about the immense trust that everyone is putting in front of themselves, like that everyone is putting in Sarah to shoot this and organize it in a way that makes them all look like people rather than, you know, like there's a cut of this film where they're all assholes. There's, there's a way to tell the story where no one comes off well. And just, you know, watching Michael Polly explain to us that Diane Polly just wasn't getting what she needed from him and had to find it elsewhere. And that he's not necessarily okay with it, but he's okay with the result. Uh, even now, my brain is still protecting the twist. It's not even a twist. It's a revelation. But, yeah. but it's such a fascinating way to structure those scenes where it is so graceful and loving and protective of everyone. Yeah. And I think for that reason, it's it struck me as, you know, painfully honest because maybe we're not okay with how everything went down in our families, but ultimately I think a lot of us are okay with the results. And I thought also as much as it says about family and being a child and being a parent, it said so much that I thought was very true about marriage. Like ultimately at the end, I think her sister says, you know, mom loved Michael Polly the most, but he couldn't give her what she needed. And I thought, you know, how off, how, how often does that happen? How true is that, that the person, and then John says at a certain point, there's always one person who loves more in a relationship and it's rare or maybe never happens in life that we meet each other in the same, that, that two people can love each other exactly the same amount at exactly the same time. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's like a very mature revelation to have. And maybe that, maybe that is true. And I really thought that she, you know, her mother isn't here to tell her story, but I felt so much empathy and sympathy for her mother. Yeah. You oh, know, she's some complicated choices, obviously, but I personally really related to some of the choices that she made. Yeah. No, Diane never comes off as a villain. Um, and there's, there is a way to make that work. I think, there's a way to tell that version of the story, but I just don't think any of the kids would be interested in that version. Diane's absence isn't anything that anybody in the film would have wanted, right? Like they would all, every single person would rather she was here. And the film feels that. That's, I think that's the thing that I keep coming back to, just the way that those sequences where Rebecca Jenkins is the avatar of Diane Polly, like she's just playing someone who is physically there. And I talked to Sarah about that at the time. It's like, you're directing someone to be your mom. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that feel? And she just said on the day, she couldn't even think about it. Like she was just processing the lighting. She was thinking about the props and the clothes and making sure it all worked. And in the editing, it was when it was difficult to just figure it. She could, I think that was how she explained it. She couldn't tell how much of it she needed versus how much of it the film needed. And it was that push pull that, that finally solved it. So you almost never see all of Diane's face. She's always turning away or obscured in some way that that key shot of people on the phone around the corner from each other is designed to isolate us as much as it is to isolate the characters in memory. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how Sarah says at the end, was this all just an exercise essentially to get closer to her and to know her in a way that she never will be able to because her mother's gone. And I just thought, 
you know, the film, like when I was rewatching it today, I cried all over again. Because just so many layers to it that feels so real and so tr- true. I cried because of Sarah's bravery and choosing to explore this, but also how much it says really about all of our families. Like there are, there are unknowable parts of our parents. There are unknowable parts of our siblings that we will never fully know the truth because the truth is subjective and we weren't there for all of it. Yeah. I mean, my parents divorced when I was 10. Um, it absolutely shaped me like irrevocably, right? I'm not the same person I would have been if they'd stayed together. I, none of us is, that's not how life works, but it's the, the intensity of watching a family struggle to keep itself together and then fall apart anyways, just like, it was almost too painful for me. Diane died in 1990 and Sarah was almost 11. So the, her brothers and sisters were older, but most of them were still around, right? Like they'd moved out of the house, but they hadn't moved out of the city yet. So there was, there was an awareness that all this was going on uh, before Diane got sick. So they're sort of peripherally aware of all this stuff happening in the marriage, but also not being able to affect it and thinking they'd all moved on. And then you see them as adults now, and it's so clear that they're carrying all of this stuff. Yeah. And also, you know, that the, your father, is it your father started as a, a joke? A weird joke between the kids. Yeah. Kids, because John had overheard something on the phone. Um and it made me also think about like, okay, yes, there are some secrets that we just don't know in our family, but do we sort of know? Or do you always have an idea of what's really gone on behind the scenes, even if it's too painful to talk about, or you can't talk about it, or you won't talk about it? Um, the film just has so much to say about family and family as a unit and as an animal unit. And I thought the different versions of how people protect each other and themselves was also fascinating. And it's something that we all see play out in our families, no matter how close or far apart you may be. Yeah. And and you would have seen this when it was first released in, in 2012. Yes. I saw it theatrically when it was first released. Um, and then I saw it again, again today on, I, I bought it again on YouTube. <laughs> Nice. I have the UK Blu-ray, which, uh, again, we were talking about this before we started rolling, but it's ridiculous that there's no Canadian Blu-ray release of this. But whatever, we had to actually, I had to carry a, I think I can tell people about this. We screened it at Harborfront um, back in, I don't know, 2013 or 14. It was one of the one of those summer seasons that I was programming, and I actually had to bring my multi-region Blu-ray player down to connect it to the projection system oh. so we could screen the best possible version of it. Sorry, Mongrel. But it was one of those things where it's just like, it's absurd that, I mean, you can argue the importance of a personal documentary. It's not, I don't know, like it's not a massive statement in the way that some other Canadian cinema has been in the last 20 years. But I, I would fight pretty hard for this as one of the key Canadian films of the 21st century. Uh, if not ever, just because it is, it says so much about, you know, the culture of Canada too. It's like a nation of semi-immigrants by that point. And, and Michael coming from the UK and Diane having this this thing for Englishmen like that comes up in the, in the sense that there's a, um, there's, there's a Quebec influence. It, it actually is this really bizarre convoluted statement about what Canada was when Sarah was a kid and how since she has come to represent Canada to so much of the world, it is kind of an identity statement, which I find absolutely fascinating. and is a metaphor that I may have just built in my head right now, but I'm pretty sure it's a valid take. 
Yeah, no, that's a very valid take. And I was thinking as I was watching, this is my favorite of her films. And I was thinking as I was watching this, how truly, like how loyal she stayed to Canada as a filmmaker and as an artist and how Canada never feels lesser in her films. Like there's never a sense of embarrassment or a little brother syndrome, um, which I think is rare in in a lot of Canadian filmmakers. Like I would say she is one of the proudest Canadian filmmakers that has ever existed or that still exists. Yeah, she's not boostery about it, right? Like there aren't flags everywhere, but it is definitely who we are being part of the story. And like just the same way, Take This Waltz is this idealized, romanticized version of Toronto where there's rep cinemas on every corner and people ride bicycles and walk to the beaches and, and celebrate the the summer that we can have here, that idyllic time where the city is just at its most beautiful. And she said that was her goal. Like she wanted to do the idealized version of Toronto, but she also made away from her, which is a wintry, cold, remote movie. It's, it's not, and no one complains. It's just the way it is. And we're surviving and we're doing our best. And those things are so acutely human and so acutely Canadian somehow, right? That we're just getting along. Women talking is, um, is deliberately vague about where it takes place or when it takes place. But I'm assuming in my head it's rural Ontario somewhere, a Mennonite community in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, and it's a Marion Taves novel, so it's technically Canadian content. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> Canadian yeah. actors in it. Um, yeah, and I think also this film feels particularly Canadian in some of its sensibilities because there are there are sensational reveals, but none of it feels sensationalized. Like if it was you know, let's picture some big American documentaries. It would be like very heavy score or people sobbing or it'd be like, my father's not my father, but you don't, that's not how it's revealed here. I also thought how different this film would have been had she made it today and how much sooner she would have known who her biological father was because we've all done 23andMe or some of her siblings would have, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's, I hadn't even thought about that, but yeah, the technology has outpaced everything that happens in the film. Just before it opened, there was a benefit screening for, uh, maybe it was the NICU at Mount Sinai, possibly, but Sarah asked me to come and do the, the Q&A afterwards with Michael, and I think John was there too. Uh, a couple of her brothers were there, and and Michael and herself, and it was on film then too, and it's just so strange to think that that was even a possibility even 10 years ago that there was a chance that i could see a movie on film that was made in in 2012 uh and shot digitally yeah yeah also i think she shot some of it looks like it's i think i saw in in the film there is a a film camera and a lot of it looks like super eight and so i don't know if she did that in sort of a post-production effect or she shot it super eight but the sort of the and the the layering of different different films and different filmmaking techniques. Like obviously when she's interviewing her siblings, that's digital. And then some of the stuff with Rebecca Jenkins and with her father or where she's playing herself, that sort of looks like it's on film. And I thought that's a really interesting way to, you know, make it feel like a memory for the audience also. Yeah. It felt like there was 16 millimeter used for the, for the flashbacks if nothing else. Yes. And yes. and then there's some grading use and there's that still photo of her in the, um, in the cave woman makeup from, from Mr. Yeah. Nobody. Uh, yeah. and then I, that stuff is so weird. It's so, it's that great because so it's so, you also, you almost disassociate while you're watching it because you're seeing 
It's it's something that somebody told me once about the Twilight Zone footage of, of the accident that killed Vic Morrow and, and the two kids he was he was holding when a stunt went wrong and a helicopter crashed into into the set. It's horrifying, but it looks like a movie because it's lit and it's like the gels are all in place and they had professional lighting and it's shot by a cinematographer. And right up until something goes wrong, the shot moves as though it is a clip from a film. So your brain doesn't process it the same way. You are saying, oh, I know what this is. You're suspending your disbelief, even though it's actually real. And here you have these shots of her receiving the most life-changing news of her entire adulthood. And she's a parody of herself. Like she's dressed in, a, in this ridiculous costume and it's just how life happens. You, you have absolutely no control. And, and by using that shot, she's acknowledging she doesn't control her image in the same way a movie star would. But that's not who she is anymore, right? Like she's already sort of abandoned, not abandoned, but she's put her acting career on pause to finish this film and then just never got back to it in a really weird way that also wasn't something she was thinking about when it happened. It's just all this stuff retroactively now applies to a film that you're watching in the moment. Yeah. And her father, uh, her the father who raised her narrates that part of the film like, you know, comedy will always rear its head at yeah. the street moments essentially and you're like yeah that is so that is something you could write in a fictionalized film and no one would believe but because it happened in real life you're like tr the truth is stranger than fiction she was dressed as like a monstrous monkey when yeah. she got this news that a journalist was going to break the story that her father was not her father and that she you know she looked in the mirror after washing her face after crying and she saw this monster reflected back at her because of the prosthetic makeup and I just thought yeah, life is so, so, so funny that way. And it's, yeah, as a filmmaker, you sort of want those absurd moments in your films, but it's like, no, you would never believe it. Life is always more absurd. Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to tell you about the latest Shiny Things newsletter, my weekly dispatch about physical media, culture, and even the odd streaming thing. Last week, I wrote about the sudden loss of writer-director Jeff Barnaby and revisited two very different stories about people stuck in rural spaces, Farmageddon, a Shaun the Sheep movie, and George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead. As you do. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. Did you miss me writing about movies? I did. Come check it out. I wondered what it was like for Sarah, because she... It's not that she's breaking the fourth wall, but there is um, such a meta. The film is very meta, I guess, and, that, and she actually acts out the scene with her father where she tells her father that he's not her father. Mm -hmm. Like you see them recreating that, not speaking the exact lines, but I wondered like, what was that like? Or was it just, did it feel so normal? Because when you're a storyteller and a filmmaker, that's your instinct. Like so much of my film, although I adapted a book, is so there's so much of me and my family in that film. And no part of it felt weird or exploitative, even though it may very well be. <laughs> You'll find out when they see it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they've seen it. They've definitely all seen it. But but um yeah, I don't know if that's just something that feels so natural to us and she has such a creative family much like my family so I feel like I could say to my family I want to make a documentary about us and they would probably say okay just as her family that's so used to 
you know, being artists and creative expression and sort of anything goes, I'm sure maybe some of them felt uncomfortable at times, but it seems like they were all very open to it because they're all very honest. Yeah. I mean, at that Q and a, everybody said they were happy with the result. Yeah. Um, Michael Polly made some joke about how, you know, anything that puts his, his face on a 30 foot screen, he's happy with. It's like, right. okay, but come on, man. We know, we know this wasn't easy. And he ultimately acknowledged that he's like writing the, writing the notes, writing the messages, the letters, that was hard for him to yeah. actually put it down. But I think he meant that in a, not in a confessional way, but a, he was so, he was so focused on getting the language right. Like he, he really did devote himself to getting that right, to, to expressing himself exactly as he wanted to. And that's the thing that Sarah honors as a filmmaker, I think, not just by letting him read it, but, and even, and you're right, the meta stuff is right there as soon as we see her there with him, directing him in the reading of it, but in the, in the editing of it and in them trusting her that she'll cut it in a way that tells the truth rather than make them all look good. And that, I think that's the most important thing that the fact that the film respects everyone in it, um, has to be a conscious decision, right? You, you have to be absolutely exacting in the way that you structure something like that to do justice to everyone's story. Yeah. And I mean, I think that she's such a, um, she's such a powerful intellect. Like I do think she's one of our great minds. And when you watch this film, everyone actually gets to tell the story and everyone gets to tell their story. So is it, her is it Michael Polly's story because he narrates it? Is it her story because she directed it? Is it her biological sto- father's story because he does get to tell his whole unvarnished truth? Is it her sibling's story because they get to weigh in also and they all have different POVs? Somehow she has constructed a narrative that is sort of everyone's point of view at once, which I think is incredibly rare, particularly in a documentary. Um, but I was I would just remained so impressed and so moved by that. And as far as the difficulty of making the film when I was rereading, reading some interviews that she did today, sort of to prepare for this conversation, she said how difficult she found it. Like she found it incredibly painful and difficult to make this film. And I thought, yeah, maybe it was the hardest on her because think of that, think of the responsibility or the weight that she would have carried thinking I could piss my whole family off or I could tarnish my mother's memory or I, I'm putting like my relationship with both like both my biological father and my father sort of is hanging in the balance here. Um, but again, I just found, I find it so brave. Yeah, it absolutely is. And, and the film is like, it's formally daring in a really subtle way too. just the way that the film stops dead. So we can all feel the loss for the first time of this person who's never been present, right? Like Diane is spoken of constantly and glimpsed in those recreations. But in the moment, it's like 20 minutes before the ending, the film is sort of barreling towards this conflict and then Diane gets sick and it all just gets derailed. It's great storytelling, it's good structure, it's it's like dramatically unimpeachable. But the fact that there's that 40 seconds of silence or however long it is where it just goes dead and everyone's face, everyone, like, it's just people sitting still in front of the camera and it's cut together so elegantly. I I mean, I've seen that with an audience twice now, three times. Um, But in the second screening, 
was the, the varsity benefit screening that I was at. That was a packed house in the varsity eight, the great big room with like, I think it's 650 people. And it was this absolute silence. The, the soundtrack drops, everyone's still, the whole room was still. And then one person went <gasps> and sort of sniffled. And then it just went popping off. Like every other person, the whole room was, was crying by the end of it, but it hit them at different moments, which was such a fascinating experience to watch standing, watching that audience happening in that moment, watching them grappling with it. And I don't think I've ever experienced anything else like that in a, in a doc, in a personal documentary, where you are just walloped with the sense of loss. And I think it's how Sarah lets us feel it. Like it's how it's how she connects us to her in that moment rather than her family. Her family's there, they're all on screen, but she's seeing them. And and that's been established that she's the one doing the interviews and she's the one behind the camera. She's the one processing all of this. And in that moment, I think we finally get into her head. We understand what it is like for her to constantly see people suffering this loss because that's how family works, right? Like you just, you're always remembering the person who's absent and it's devastating. It's, it's, it's very devastating. And it's also, you know, we obviously went into the film knowing the backstory of a little bit of the backstory of the family, but the average viewer wouldn't. So you sort of watch the film and you watch it play out. And I almost forgot that her mother had passed away and passed away so young. So I felt exactly what you're experiencing, which was that feeling of like, on top of all of this, there's this grief and this loss. And her mother is such a, it seems like such a larger than life character and so joyful and really was sort of, you know, like the sun that they all orbited around. And you think like, well, you, and, and then when Michael talks about the grief afterwards and how he would just play solitaire alone and how he was left with this little girl who was Sarah, um, you just feel the pain so acutely. And what I also found and find so interesting is Sarah looks a lot like her mother. So, and I know that it was an actress playing her, but having seen some images of her actual mother, and there's a little bit of her actual mother in the film, you think like, wow, like Sarah is obviously this magnetic personality, like her mother and looks so much like her. And what was that like for Michael? And what was that also like for her biological father? Yeah. That's the one thing the film doesn't really get into, right? I mean, there's that sort of moment where Michael alludes to not knowing how to take care of a child. And, and Sarah's gone into that in detail in her book. Yeah. Where she was just sort of adrift in a way. And and in some strange psychic transference thing, Michael was depending on her in a way that he would have depended on Diane for emotional support and treating her as an adult, but it wasn't healthy for either of them. Mm-hmm. And that's it's glanced off in the film. And I think it's because I mean, maybe maybe it's a running time issue. The movie's already almost two hours, but I, it feels like Sarah maybe wasn't ready to deal with that just yet. And then we get it in the book, and it all sort of locks into focus. Something something really strange happens in Run Towards the Danger, where it opens alternate windows on some of the work that she's done without ever directly commenting on it. I mean, she doesn't talk about making movies in the book. It's just not the focus of those stories other than trying to get a movie made with a concussion, which, which was something she was coping with. But the, um, the way that it plays for me now is that she's just not ready to explore that. 
And even if it is simply that it didn't fit in the structure of the film, then they did talk about it and it's on the cutting room floor somewhere. It works this way. Like it, it, that just opens up a whole other avenue that the movie isn't ready to deal with at that point in the film because we're still grieving. And I don't think, you know, like, she's coping with that. She's dealing and processing through the film that she's making, but she's not ready to process what happened afterwards yet. Yeah. And I also, I got the impression where I put this on that, that part of the film, but I thought that she was letting everyone keep their dignity. Like I thought that there was probably more to get into there about what it was like after her mother passed away and with her father and that, you know, the movie ultimately wasn't about that. And I think that it was very, it, it, it was very respectful. And I thought, what a feat because she's dealing with some pretty complicated adult decisions <laughs> that really affected her and her childhood. You oh know? yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe that's it too. I mean, it wasn't until, or maybe it wasn't until Michael had died that she was willing to go any further into that. And I understand that totally. Like, I think that we want to protect our parents just as our parents want to protect us. I almost think children want to protect their parents more. Oh, as you get older, I'm sure. Yeah. Especially since, you know, we always fool ourselves as as the kids into thinking that, you know, we're the more mature ones and our parents are just a bunch of idiots from an older generation. It's like, that's technically true, but also the, if there's one thing I've learned about myself as I get older, it's that I'm I'm pretty dumb, I, even if I'm in my 50s. Well, yeah, I mean, it's that saying, like, as I got older, my dad got smarter. <laughs> and it's, it's very, it's very true. And I thought what was a particularly interesting moment in the film is they say after this reveal came out about who Sarah's biological father was, all three sisters got divorced. And you think... Was it because, and she talks about this in the film, she or it's spoken about in the film, they didn't, they understood their mom's choice in having an affair. And they thought she chose life. I want to choose life too. And I really get that, especially as I get older, like and just how complicated relationships are, how you can act in a way that you might think like, you know, if you're a child or you're less mature, you're like, well, that's not very moral, but you get older and you think you, you have to save yourself. Yeah. And, and you have to, how can I put this without sounding incredibly dismissive of people who choose to stay? You have to know who you are before you can know what you want. I think that's, I mean, certainly that's the moral of stories we tell. Uh, if there's a moral at all. And and I think that's also what Take This Waltz is about. And I think in a way, that's what Away From Her is about. It's understanding all of these films are about understanding that maybe a partner is better off without you in some cases, or there's there's a there's a happiness to be found in a relationship ending. Yeah, I, absolutely. I felt that's what Take This Waltz is about. Um, and in, yeah, in stories we tell, too also and also i felt like that we're always better for having loved even if it's incredibly complicated i do think that's sort of what i took away from from stories we tell neither man who was very in love with her mother seems regretful and they both this is sounding weird too they both got sarah out of it right like i mean sarah's relationship to both of her dads is just as valid. Like each relationship is fully valid, even though she didn't know about Harry until later, that still doesn't take away the, the connection that they have and, and the place that they end up. And the film brings us there too, very, very elegantly. Yeah. And Michael says, you know, 
this is the father who raised her says Sarah wouldn't be Sarah if she wasn't biologically Harry's daughter. And I also thought we collectively as a society wouldn't have Sarah if she wasn't Harry's daughter, you know? So I thought, yeah, it's like, there's so many interesting layers and, and there's a lot of discussion to have about that. But I thought definitely no one's at a loss for having Sarah. (laughs) And I, and this is where, again, this is where I, I, worry that I'm becoming more of a friend and a booster than I am a, a, a journalist or critic or what, but whatever. I mean, I've, I've seen women talking and God damn it. It's also a masterpiece. Like it's, it's, have, have you seen it? Did you get, no, have you no, it? No, I didn't get to see it at TIFF. So I'll see it at Christmas when everyone else can. <laughs> yeah. Opening in early December, I think. Um, it was very weird watching it and seeing, I guess it was very weird, but it also wasn't very weird watching it and seeing her in it. She doesn't appear in the film. She's entirely behind the camera, but there's there are things that she's doing in it that feel 100% her. There's moments, especially after reading Run Towards the Danger, there are moments where um, these these Mennonite women who've sequestered themselves in a barn to have this debate about whether they're going to stay or, or leave their community after discovering decades of abuse that uh, have been going on at the hands of the men there. Um, there are two young girls, there are kids who are there because they're girls, because they've been taken in by by their parents to, to come to this meeting. And they're off in the corners, just sort of giggling quietly to themselves and not really paying attention. And that's who Sarah was when she was making Avonlea. Like she's just written about this in the book. And it's that she's found a way to put herself into those characters. And she's found a way to put herself into other characters in the film. And, and it is even more her in a bizarre way than the documentary she made about herself. Which, which I find absolutely amazing. Totally. And also to your point of, you know, you're a friend and a booster now, I'm also her biggest fan. So I could never <laughs> talk about her with any objectivity and I would never want to. Um, but yeah, I wonder too how much of it is sort of so subconscious for her. Like how much of it is, oh, I remember being like this on Avonlea or this is what I acted like when I was a stage. So I'll throw that in this scene. Or is that just you know, the fabric of our memories, our, our version of our past comes out in our art. Yeah. I mean, I can see her just simply writing that stage direction. The kids are messing around in the background, but then on the day it's, it's so clear that we're supposed to sympathize with them for the split second, for this moment of the film that we're on their side. Of course, they're kids. They have no idea what's going on around them. They're just, the grownups are doing stuff and they're just there to play their part. It's like, Oh my God, this is, this is also just from the fabric of, yeah, you're right. Everybody just draws on on their own understanding of, of their pasts and their own lives in order to, to create. So actually, this does bring us not totally as smoothly as I would have hoped, but my brain's going in five different directions. Uh, but it does bring us to the to the question of, like, is there anything of, of stories we tell or Sarah's other films that you used yourself in, in We're All In This Together because you're so clearly not drawing on a history of having played your own twin, but there's, but there is a liveliness in that, in that dual performance that tells me, you know, these people. Yes. I put, you know, a lot of, there was a lot in the book and then there was a lot in sort of my own family history to do with mental illness or alcoholism uh, that I could draw upon And not that my family is highly dysfunctional and not that their lives were rendered unlivable because of mental illness, but I did feel like 
I had some right to talk about it. Um, maybe how Sarah felt like she had the right to sort of author her family's history. I felt like I had the right to have some kind of comment on on these issues in in my first film. It's a weird place to be, right? I mean, we're just teetering on the this strange political position of people who haven't lived a thing shouldn't be allowed to do the thing on film, except that that's how acting works, and that there is there is a gray area. There is space for this sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think it's a very interesting debate. I think it's a worthwhile debate, but I also think it's very important that people are able to explore things outside of their own experience in, in art. So do I know what it's like to be a twin? No. Do I know what it's like to have two people inside me? Yes. Is Did my mother suffer from extreme mental illness and have a psychotic episode? No. Do, have I loved and been close to people who have had psychotic episodes? Yes. So there was a lot, you know, that I felt that I could use in and and draw upon. Yeah, I, I'm just constantly, you know, I'm perfectly happy with Jared Leto never playing another trans character. Don't get me wrong. That should stop. But we're in a place now where I think that the argument for authenticity is in danger of overshadowing the idea of empathy and interpretation. And so we're in a we're in a really weird place. And I'm glad that there's still art being made that pushes at the edges of, you know, the 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 represent it's not representation it's the other thing interpretation imagination and there's yeah i think there's room for it and also it's just i don't know it's a it's a fascinating technical challenge right like an artistic and technical challenge to do this sort of thing and to be able to do it well yeah and to you know, I also think it's so, you know, Sarah made an incredibly revealing film. It is a documentary about herself, her biology, her family. But you also ask yourself, well, how much of actual me do I want to put in this? Because then you think, oh, well, Norm's going to see it. People <laughs> know are going to see it. And what would they think of me? But almost those questions are too overwhelming to think. So you sort of have to just sort of, as Sarah said to you, when she was directing Rebecca Jenkins playing her mother on the day she's thinking about the lighting and the wardrobe and the scene. It has to hit you later. I feel like if you take in the enormity of I'm putting a lot of myself in this and people are going to see it and have opinions on it and some people will like it and some people won't, it, it like you would never make anything. Yeah. Well, I mean, did it did it hit you in the editing room? Was there something that you found was too personal or too close or just just right? I mean, it was just seeing my own face twice that really hit me in the editing room. Like that's something I would wish on no one. But I do think that similar to what Sarah has said in interviews about this, it's like, there's the movie that you think you have. And then the, there's a movie that you do have. And how do you come to peace with that? Or how do you make the best version of what you shot? Um, but, it, you know, my film is is revealing and there is a lot of me in it. And so I had to make peace with that pretty early on. Yeah, I'm, well, I mean, if you wrote it too, that would help. I mean, you're actually structuring it in advance. It's not a documentary where you have to find it. It's that's got to be at least a little reassuring, knowing that you have a script to refer to when you start. Yes, I knew what scenes were coming when, <laughs> so that was good. Yeah, it's a good way to brace yourself emotionally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My thanks to Katie Boland, whose charmingly chaotic first feature, "We're All in This Together," is now playing in Toronto and Vancouver, and coming to VOD later this year. Thanks also to Ali Lemaire Shedden. She knows what she did. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie Boland, all one word, and you can find stories we tell on DVD only from Mongrel Media in Canada and Lionsgate in the US. It's also streaming on Netflix, CBC Gem, and Canopy in Canada, 
on Canopy and Amazon Freebie in the US, and available to rent or buy on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Simcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash simcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, including Katie's first episode on Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll like it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you've been enjoying it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.